And while uh, people are uh, finding their their seats, especially some of those that are coming over from the fellowship hall, there's a lot of seats over here, guys, up here over on this side in the front. And we got a whole, as usual, front row that's clear uh, or largely clear. Well, we are extremely blessed to have Dr. Craig Hazen uh, with us uh, for our service this morning. He spoke during the Sunday school uh, hour just a little bit ago. It was a wonderful launch to uh, our series on postmodernism and uh, the emerging church. Uh, Dr. Hazen is uh, the founder and director of the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola University. He's been teaching there about 10 10 years, and uh, he is also the editor of the Philosophia Christi, um, uh, which is a philosophy journal. He's also authored the book, The Village Enlightenment in America. And do we have any of those available? We do have those available. And then also there's a book, The Five Crossings, that will be uh, published January 1st. So you won't be able to pick up a copy of that, but be looking looking for that. Uh, He is married and has four children, ages 18, 16, 14, and 14. Uh, so anyway, we're very blessed to have him. There, there is some uh, uh, the books and uh, other stuff that's out there uh, on the book table that you guys want to get your hands on. This is a CD, Christianity and the Challenge of World Religions, uh, by him that we would highly commend uh, to you. Uh, but Dr. Hazen, thank you for sharing with us as you did uh, during the Sunday School Hour this morning. Uh, very impacting and enlightening. And we're looking forward to hearing about the certainty of Christ that we have uh, in him and in his word. So God bless you as you come, brother. Let's give him a warm cornerstone welcome. Ah, thank you. My pleasure. Well, thanks for having me here. This, is, this has been fun so far. By the way, I, I, do get, I do get around a little bit, so it's fun to come to churches. By the way, I love this place. There's just the right size, you know. Some of these places are so big, it's just hard to, you get lost in them. But this is wonderful. But that's, it's not just the size and, the, and the, the warm facility, but, boy, you cannot escape this church without walking out going, now I know what the gospel is. And that's a great thing. I mean, oh, my goodness. I, don't, I think we've lost sight of exactly how holy God is. So we, we don't recognize how far separated from him we are in our sins and what a great salvation has been accomplished. You can't miss that here. Thanks for making that central. My goodness, that is a, I wish it weren't rare, but it's, it's a bit rare these days. Well, greetings from Biola University. Yeah, yeah. Woo-hoo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You were the ones whose kids got financial aid, you know. <laughs> I know that. Yeah, I've been I've been at Biola about ten years. I remember I remember my first introduction to Biola. I got on campus, and some of the faculty were saying, "Oh yeah, I got some great students here." But if you want to really find out what they're all about, you know, you can monitor them online. You know, this was kind of newfangled stuff ten years ago. You know, there was this there was this electronic bulletin board system where students would communicate, and you can kind of find out what they're up to. Well, this was my first introduction to Biola. The students were having a contest on the best theory on anything. It's pretty wide open, you know? And so they, they ran a contest and students were posting theories. And, and I was very impressed because this was, this was the grand prize winner. And the subject, 
is thermodynamics. Yeah, thermodynamics. Uh, we don't have an engineering school, so this is particularly impressive, you know. Uh, thermodynamics. And here's what the student, here's what the student winner posted. When a cat is dropped, it always lands on its feet. <laughs> We're off to a good start. Aren't we? And when toast is dropped, it always lands buttered side down. I propose that we strap giant slabs of hot buttered toast to the back of a hundred tethered cats. The two opposing forces will cause the cats to hover, <laughs> spinning just inches above the ground, using a giant buttered toast cat array. We could easily link uh, Los Angeles and Palm Springs with a high-speed monorail, cutting hours off of our travel time during spring break. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have an engineering department. We have a marvelous creative writing department. And, uh, that, was my, that was my introduction to Biola. And a wonderful introduction to this church. You know, you've got PowerPoint up here. You know. uh, of course, they contacted me and said, now, do you have PowerPoint? I said, no. <laughs> you know, I, I, so I haven't learned how to do that yet. You know, I, I can barely use a cell phone. Uh, I'm not, so so I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in Finland one time. Finland is the home of Nokia phones. I mean, there are, there are more cell phones in Finland than there are Finns, right? So it's a great Finnish tradition to go into a sauna. Go into a sauna, and you're not wearing a whole lot in a sauna, you know? A bunch of old guys in towels, you know? And I hear a beeping. Well, who's got something to beep, you know? But a guy reaches down to his arm, pushes some button. What was he getting, a page, you know? Then I hear a ringing. And the guy touches his wrist, and he begins to talk. I mean, they were way out of my league technologically. So uh, to redeem myself, I went to the restroom and came back with uh, toilet paper hanging out of my ear. <laughs> Told him I was getting a fax. <laughs> and that, uh, that didn't really happen. Um, <laughs> I've, I've never been to Finland, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to tell the truth the rest of the time. Uh, uh, I, did, I did my doctoral work in religious studies at UC Santa Barbara. Yeah, yeah, nobody's going, ooh. Yeah. Uh, no? Uh, go gauchos? Gauchos, you know? It just didn't... Uh, Bruins and, you know... It doesn't seem like it, it, it just rings, you know. I mean, what is a gaucho? Is that, isn't that like an out-of-fashion form of women's pant, you know? <laughs> Maybe they're in fashion again, and I've got to be careful with that. But I don't know. Argentine cowboy, you say? I'll buy that. Uh, so I'm doing my doctoral work in religious studies at UC Santa Barbara. This was a blast. Here I am, a Bible-believing Christian, going off to one of the most hostile uh, parts... D- pieces of turf on the planet to see what it's all about. I got accepted, in, and it's one of the best doctoral programs in the country. You know, it's, it's like UC Santa Barbara and University of Chicago and Harvard and Yale and 
uh, a couple of places. I mean, so it's a really a top-notch religious studies program. So I was, I was delighted and honored to get accepted. And I go up there as a Bible-believing Christian. And believe me, there weren't a whole lot of us hanging around there. It was a big graduate program, and uh, I was probably the only uh, guy like me in it, you know. And, uh, but I had this marvelous opportunity to compare right, biblical Christianity with all of the other great world religious traditions. And it was a blast. I, I loved every second of it. And now, I hope some of you do things like that. Go off to grad school and learn about Islam and Buddhism and so forth. But, but if you don't, let me boil it all down for you. Right? Uh, I'll give you the bottom line of, as, a, as a conservative Christian going into kind of a hostile environment like that. Here it is. Here's the bottom line. Christianity compared to the other great religious traditions. Christianity's weird. We, we, I don't know what it is we bought into, but it's, it doesn't fit this category of religion very well at all. I kid you not. In fact, this gospel that was presented to you this morning, unique in the history of humankind with regard to any kind of religious reflection. You do not find that. In order to get Christianity to fit this category we call religion, you've got to tear pieces off and you've got to stuff real hard, you know, and then there's still pieces flailing outside the sack. You know, it just, it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit at all. Christianity is really a strange religion if you want to try to consider it a religion. It doesn't fit the mold very well at all. Christianity is a strange bird. Uh, I give whole semester courses on the differences between Christianity and the other religions, but let me, let me boil it down to one important distinction for you. This, this is something that really captures my imagination with regard to the differences between Christianity and, say, Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and Native American traditions and so forth. Here it is. Christianity is testable. It's testable. That is, you can offer evidence for it. You can offer evidence against it. Right? And the evidence means something. Right? You, clear thinking, good reasoning, offering of evidence, clear and focused investigation actually means something in Christianity. You can determine whether it's true or not because it's open to that kind of investigation. Now you're saying to yourself, well, aren't other religions like that? No, not really. Some are overtly not like that. Say Zen Buddhism, for instance. You don't, you don't investigate the truth of Zen Buddhism. You don't, you don't do some historical study to find out if the Buddha, you know, Siddhartha Gautama taught the Four Noble Truths in the uh, Eightfold Path in the Deer Park in Benares. You don't, you don't go and test those kinds of things. It doesn't matter. A Zen Buddhist does not care. A thoughtful, knowledgeable Zen Buddhist will tell you, look, it doesn't matter if the Buddha ever existed. What matters is my personal journey towards enlightenment. My movement towards enlightenment. In other words, for the Zen Buddhist, it's all about what's going on inside of the Zen Buddhist. It's all about personal religious experience. Now, I love personal religious experience. I think uh, nobody can hold a... I don't think anybody can hold a candle to what we have as personal religious experience in Christianity, but we don't leave it there, do we? We don't leave it there at all. Uh, we have this weird situation where, uh, you know, if, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, the whole thing's bunk, you know? It doesn't matter <laughs> what you believe. 
So uh, in Buddhism, it's all about what goes on inside the Zen Buddhist. There's, there's some religions that sound like they're testable or that you can investigate them. But at the end of the day, they're, they're really not testable. Say uh, uh, Mormonism, for instance. Mormonism, one of my areas of specialty. Uh, didn't plan on that, but the Lord just keeps dragging me right back into it. I wish I had a whole hour to tell you what's going on in uh, the ranks of the Mormons around the world. There are some startling things happen, happening. I, I wouldn't be surprised if somehow in the next 25 to 50 years, the Mormon church becomes some sort of evangelical body of believers. That's the, the spirit is moving there, and it's dicey and it's crazy, and I can't believe what's going on. But pray for the, pray, pray for the Latter-day Saints. But something interesting about talking with Latter-day Saints over the years is that it sounds very historical and testable, but at the end of the day, it's not. For instance, um, let's say you're in a conversation with a Mormon about the Book of Mormon, right? And let's say you've really done your homework and you've discovered that the Book of Mormon really isn't what it purports to be. It's not an ancient history of the people of the Western Hemisphere. It's just not. There's not a, there's not a single shred of reliable historical evidence to demonstrate that. Right? Let's say, and you're making a good case with your Mormon friend or professor or neighbor or missionary at your door or something. You're making your case and you're, boy, you, in fact, you're making progress. This guy doesn't really have any answers to your, your kinds of inquiries and your, your presentation of evidence. I've seen this happen at every level. Missionaries at my door, local Mormon teachers, uh, senior le- uh, teachers at Brigham Young University and leaders in the Mormon church in Salt Lake City. I've had conversations with all of them that have gone like this, starting to make progress on some of these subjects. If it gets a little too hot in the kitchen, they'll step back and say, now wait a minute, you have to understand something. At the end of the day, it's not about evidence. It's about what has happened inside of me. See, I have an internal testimony that Joseph Smith is indeed a restoration prophet, and the Book of Mormon is uh, the the latter-day testament of Jesus Christ. See, at the end of the day, it's about what goes on inside the Mormon. And so there's no arguing with that at that point because it's, it's all about internal experience. So sometimes, and this is true in Islam and other religions, sounds like they're offering to you some sort of testable information, uh, but, but by the time you're done uh, exploring it, it's not. It ends up being about what goes on inside of them. That's not the case with Christianity. In fact, to demonstrate this, let me read to you One of the strangest passages in all of religious literature. You're not going to find something like this in the Bhagavad Gita, in the Book of Mormon, in the Buddhist Tripitaka, in the the Quran, or anything else. Check this out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This will blow your mind. 1 Corinthians 15. This verse is so bizarre, sets Christianity apart from the pack. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be starting with verse 12, reading through about 19. But uh, in this passage by the Apostle Paul, he's dealing with the resurrection of the dead. And in so doing, he says a couple of things that, that just seem totally out of whack with regard to how modern people think about religion. In fact, I won't even explain anything about that. I'll read the passage and see if you can pick up onto the, on the strange parts. You ready? Here's what Paul writes. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. 
But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Huh. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, or, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Well, what's the strange stuff in there? It's actually repeated twice. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, your faith is worthless. Your faith is vain. Your faith is empty. There are many ways to translate this word, and it doesn't come out well anytime. Your faith is worthless. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, your faith is worthless. Get the point? I mean, this is nice, Gabby. You have a lovely place here. But if Jesus didn't come back from the dead, I'm not sure I'd rather be here. I mean, it's a very nice day outside. I saw people on a golf course on the way here. That looked, that looked nice. And golf is a kind of religion, you know? People wear strange garments, you know? And they're, they're baptisms when you hit a bad shot by a lake. You know, sometimes the whole bag goes in, you know? There's a, there's a kind of communion, Right? Kind of communion at the, uh, uh, when you get to the 19th hole, you know, and you swill beer and eat pretzels. You know, it's, it's all there. In fact, I'm not curious, there's sociologists who actually study the elements of uh, a Japanese religion that have made their way into golf. Very strange. But, but all of it's there. But why not do that uh, rather than come here? Uh, or in fact, we can continue to meet. This is lovely. This is lovely. I don't mind getting up early. I'm an early bird. You know, we, we can come on on Sunday mornings, but we just, we just won't you know, put the cross up and we won't talk about Jesus and the gospel. Uh, we, we can have a potluck for breakfast, you know? You can bring in waffle irons and during strawberry season it would be a glorious feast, you know? Whipped cream, strawberries, the whole thing. And we could continue to enjoy each other and that would be great. But let's not keep doing this if Jesus did not come back from the dead. That is really bizarre. See, this is an objective point of contact in history. If Jesus did not actually come back from the dead, or if it's not in any way reasonable to believe that, Christianity's bunk. It's just not true. Let's move on to something else. You know, it's funny. I've been in churches, a little more on the liberal side, where I've read this passage and people gasp audibly. Like, <clears throat> talk to them afterwards. I'm like, you you can't do that. That's giving away the game. You know? It's all about mystery. You know? No, it's not. It really isn't. You know, if Jesus did not come back from the dead, uh, we're still in our sins, the whole thing's a mess. Uh, let's face reality, you know. Now, why would the Apostle Paul make such a crazy claim? Because he'd actually met the resurrected Jesus. He was a pretty secure guy to say such crazy things. Good for him. Right? So, Christianity is testable. It's testable in this regard. If Jesus did not come back from the dead, or if it's not, reasonable, not a reasonable thing to believe, perhaps we ought to go elsewhere. Maybe we can uh, 
find some spiritual fulfillment in some other tradition or something like that. And by the way, this idea that Christianity is testable is unnerving to people out there. You know that, don't you? I mean, I did, I did graduate work in a secular university, and the idea that you could actually you know, test one religion and perhaps find it to be true, that's really uh, not in the framework of what they do in religious studies at an academic level. Oh, there's a great example of this. Uh, I went to a conference, uh, one of the Cal State schools, this must have been 10 years ago now, and one of my old teachers was actually giving a keynote address on a Friday night. This guy's name was uh, John Warwick Montgomery, maybe some of you have heard the name. I actually studied under him uh, years ago, and when I saw he was on the docket, I had to get there, because it's very rare that some you know, top-level evangelical Christian scholar gives a lecture at a very secular religion and philosophy conference, especially a keynote address in a prime Friday night slot, you know. So I remember it was at Cal State Fullerton, and the lecture took place at a big chemistry lecture hall, you know. There was a periodic table of the elements on the wall and, and those little, those little uh, college wooden chairs that you sit in, they're bolted to the floor and they, and they have those little desks that fold up and over. It's just all so collegiate, you know. And so the, the evening meal had been finished and scholars, I mean literally top scholars in religion and philosophy from around the world were flowing into this room. I think they wouldn't miss this lecture because it had a very provocative title. It was The Quest for Absolutes a Sherlockian inquiry. Yeah. Okay, maybe only I'm interested in that. Uh, but anyway, with Sherlock in it, people had to be kind of interested, you know. Uh, and, and the lecture was about Sherlock Holmes and his... Hey, what, if, what if Sherlock Holmes was investigating religion, you know? So the room got packed and I, I got in early and I got a nice aisle seat, you know. Got comfortable, had that desk folded up and over, resting on it. And, and Montgomery gives his lecture, and he pulls out some papers out of a briefcase, and he blows on them, and dust flies off. You know. And it was all part of the drama, you know, because he was, he was pretending to read a long-lost uh, uh, manuscript written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, where Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson explore religious truth, you know. Well, if you know anything about Watson and Holmes, of course, they're, they're, only, they're only sticking with the evidence and they're making careful, logical deductions and moving uh, through the evidence very carefully and coming to some basic conclusions about religious truth claims. Well, there was a guy sitting across the aisle from me. I remember he was a tall, fair-skinned fellow. And I remember I, uh, the reason I remember that is because his, his earlobes were turning several shades of deep purple during the presentation, I mean, he was shaking a little bit, you know. Well, Montgomery finishes his presentation, and even before they could call for questions, you know, from the audience, this guy leaps to his feet, forgetting, of course, to fold back that little desk, you know. So, you know, e even to this day, we don't know the actual pitch of his voice. But... But he's able to eke out this, this comment. We don't know if it was pain or anger, you know. Dr. Montgomery, you, you do a tremendous damage to religion. Yeah, what was that about? You do tremendous damage to religion. After you know, all the drama and the dust settles, you start to go, oh, I know what he was talking about. 
He thought it was completely nuts and completely out of bounds that Montgomery would take religion by the collar and drag it right into the spotlight for examination. You see, religious traditions throughout history and in our modern world make religious or make truth claims about their religious beliefs all the time. And Montgomery was just turning the very careful uh, thinking of Sherlock and Watson. Uh, they're turning that loose right on to religious truth claims. And by the, by the time he got finished, you know, Christianity was the only one left standing. You know. And it was dramatic and it's very well done and disturbed everybody in the room, which was a good thing at that particular point. See, Christianity is testable. Christianity is open to that kind of scrutiny and investigation. Uh, the other religions kind of want to run and hide. I mean, what was the Apostle Paul thinking saying this? If Jesus did not come back from the dead, our faith is worthless. You know, uh, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's religious madness if you have not met the real Jesus in person and the Apostle Paul had. But uh, it's funny because when I was in religious studies grad school, when seminar classes got a little bit boring, sometimes I'd think, how would I start a religion, you know? How would I start my own religion? By the way, I could, I could make a bundle, you know. L. Ron Hubbard has nothing over me, man. I can make up a religion way better than Scientology. I'm not kidding. Scientology, I mean, you have to suspend all thinking in order to get it. I got some ways to really bring people in. I mean, we, we can do it. We can make a lot of money starting a religion, you know. I'm like, sometimes I think about that. You know, I could have made a bundle start my own religion. And, and I would have gotten all the tools I needed by doing graduate work in religious studies. One thing I would not have done, I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have hinged my whole system on some verifiable historical event. This is madness if you want to start your own religion. You can't have people checking it out. It's all got to be mystical and it's got to be from a faraway place and and if you do get gold plates like joseph smith you got to make sure like he did that an angel carries them off before anybody gets a real a real look at them and and most of the truth of the system resides in you you know as angels and uh, those sorts of spiritual beings speak to you and so forth that's how you really do it you know because that thing that kind of thing is not testable and you can keep people going Christianity doesn't do that at all. Throws the doors open. Come and investigate this. Throws the doors open. Wow. And it turns out that we've got the goods. The reason the Apostle Paul did this is he was a very secure fellow in God. Not only had he met Jesus in the flesh, but he knew that God would lay out a tremendous trail of evidence through history leading back to this resurrection so that we could proclaim it boldly. And defend it boldly as well. Uh, And the evidence is startling. that The resurrection of Jesus is by far the best attested event of ancient history. No doubt about it. And nothing even comes close. Uh, I wish I I had an hour just to lay out the evidence for the resurrection. Do you know the, the evidence is so strong in our case for the resurrection, that you can, you can demonstrate that Jesus came back from the dead using only the evidence uh, offered up by our harshest critics. In other words, our harshest critics think there are certain things that are true about the resurrection of Jesus or the, the circumstances surrounding his purported resurrection. And if you take just that evidence, you still get a resurrection. That's how strong the case is. It's amazing. In fact, I wish I, I do have a CD out on the table, a little plug. Uh, you should buy lots of them. Um, 
uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, see, all, all the proceeds will go to needy children. Mine. Uh, yeah, my, my, my twin boys need braces, and uh, your support is, is uh, solicited. The resurrection of Jesus is the best attested fact of the ancient world. I remember, I went to my, uh, I want to mention a relative here, but do you, do you have one of those families where there have been so many marriages and divorces and, and, and things, you, you're not sure exactly who you're sitting next to at Christmas dinner, you know? <laughs> so I go over, I think it was my mother-in-law's house, and I'm sitting next to a stepfather twice removed or something or other, but I'll, I'll call him Alan. So I go in. And Alan is an armchair agnostic, you know. Uh, and his, he's retired now, and his main activities are um, watching television and playing golf. Yeah. And he's very good with a TV remote. And in fact, whenever I walk into the room, you know, he knows that I am a, an outspoken Christian. I walk into the room, and he sees me coming, and he always gets his remote out, and it goes, looking for the most outrageous religious programming he can possibly find on television, you know, where people are marching around in blazing white Nehru jackets or hair to the ceiling and they're falling down and frothing, you know, and it'll, do, 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 and it'll land on, a, on the most outrageous program. He'll look at me and say, hey, here's your people. <laughs> no. I remember one time, though, I walk in and it was, it was I think it was during Christmas and, um, and isn't it funny during Christmas that these networks and the cable uh, networks and things, uh, they, they show religious programming, you know. They think we religious people like that. We like our religious programming on Christmas, you know. And so, but, but this time, this was fascinating. He was going, doo, 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 and he landed on some Discovery Channel or History Channel. They're doing a documentary on the historical Jesus. Well, I got caught up in it right away because some of the people being interviewed were, were people I know. In fact, there were even a couple of conservatives they were interviewing, you know, unheard of, you know, on, on network television. So, I could, so you know, I could, I could listen for a little while. And it was fascinating. They were going through, they were doing like 3D images of ancient Jerusalem and they were using these skeletal features of ancient Semitic men to try to find out what Jesus might have looked like. You know, it was fascinating. I love that part of it. But then if they're doing a, of course, a, a biography of Jesus in this documentary, they're going to get to two crucial points. And the first one was the crucifixion. You know how these documentaries go, they go, ooh, the crucifixion. You know, and, uh, and, and then they, after that little title sequence, they'll interview scholars sitting in front of books, you know. <laughs> or sometimes out in the quad of the college, you know. And so they're interviewing these people. And this was fascinating because it didn't matter if they were interviewing very liberal scholars from uh, Duke University or very conservative scholars from uh, Trinity or someplace. Uh, no matter who they were interviewing, they all agreed absolutely knowable history. Take it to the bank. Jesus did exist. He was a real historical figure, a preacher in the ancient Holy Land. And he was executed by a Roman crucifixion team in first century Jerusalem. Take it to the bank. Knowable history. Ink it into the history books. Done deal. That was pretty impressive. Across the board, liberal or conservative, radical or or a kook, you know, you name it. All there, across the board. Well, you know what segment followed? The resurrection. Mm, you know. And then they interview the same set of scholars sitting in pretty much the same set of books, in front of the same set of books. 
except for the couple of conservatives who addressed the resurrection very carefully, the rest said something like this, well, who can possibly know what happened in those tumultuous times so very long ago? You know? That was the sound of my head hitting the coffee table. I was, I was hollering at the television, literally, good heavens, can you believe that? I said, look what they're doing. Alan didn't care. Look what they're doing. The exact same body of evidence that led them all to believe that Jesus was executed by a Roman crucifixion team in first century Jerusalem is, you turn the page once, is the exact same body of evidence that definitively tells you he came back from the dead on the third day in his own body. Now, what are we going to do with that? This is knowable history. This is not a problem with the evidence. This is a problem with certain people's worldview or what they want to be true. It is clear and utterly compelling that Jesus came back from the dead, and it is our great hope. We've got the goods on this. I, I, I work in the area of the resurrection as one of my uh, scholarly disciplines, and it's fascinating. I love the study of it, not just because God left a tremendous trail of evidence, but it's so hopeful. Everybody in here knows somebody who's... who's uh, near death, who's sick, who's... uh, We're all going to face death one day. Some of you are either facing it now or know people who are coming close. And the hope of eternal life with Jesus through the power of the resurrection is just... I wouldn't cash it in for anything. And God left it for us. It's time we really recapture these great ideas. We've got the goods on this. I'll give you another example. I, I, got a, I got a call in my office one day from uh, the UCLA School of Medicine. You don't get a call from them very often. Uh, and they're saying, hey, we want, we want a guy to come out, you know, uh, so, so one of your professors to come out and, and speak on uh, uh, the resurrection. You know, coming up on Easter time, we do special lectures on occasion. We want to bring out some uh, local Christian kooky guy to talk about the resurrection, you know. Actually, the invitation came from a couple of evangelicals who were on the, uh, the medical student body, and, uh, and they knew something about Biola and that we might be able to give a good take on this. So they invited me out, and I went out, and I thought, you know, on the way out, I'm going, this is a good thing. You know, if, if, if dead people can come back to life, medical students ought to know something about this. <laughs> so, so I got there, and I was lecturing in a... Uh, it was a, an anatomy lecture hall. You ever seen one of these in a medical school? You know, the, the, the thing goes straight up in the air and people peer down at you. You basically lecture to people up there. They're all, they peer down at a slab you know, where they usually dissect things. You know? So I'm, I'm, I'm lecturing to them and, and uh, some bright fellow brought in sandwiches so that they'd get a big turnout. And it was jammed. You know? all the, the entire freshman and sophomore medical class, they tell me, were, were, were jammed into that room eating sandwiches. You know? So... I did a presentation on the evidence for the resurrection. And knowing that this was a medical school group, you know, I didn't use a lot of, uh, uh, lot of biblical text and a lot of flamboyance. I simply made a, a solid historical case that went uh, something like this. Jesus was alive at point A, he was dead at point B, and he was alive again at point C. The historical record is clear and compelling on that. There it is. Now, that doesn't sound all that stunning, does it? They were stunned. I was stunned that they were stunned. 
really, I, I just didn't expect that kind of reaction. But I could, I could actually see what kind of sandwich they were eating because their mouths were hanging over, you know. And I, I honestly, this, this was a lesson, I think, from the Lord for me about, about the power of this message, you know. And the fact that God really has provided us some tremendous evidence. It's compelling and persuasive, too. And, and, and I think uh, afterwards, I think I got a handle on this because one of them comes up and he says this. He goes, oh, you know, this, this was wild. I had no idea what to expect. I thought we we're going to hear some, you know, you know, religious mythology. But boy, this was very different. You see, I grew up in a Baptist home and, and I knew all the Bible stories. And, and, you know, I consider myself a Christian believer and things. But boy, you, are, you approach this very differently. You made it sound like it's true, true. What did he mean by that? What do you mean? You're making it sound like it's true, true. After reflecting on it, what he meant was, you're making it sound like it's not some sort of weird religious truth that you access only by blind faith. And that's what the world thinks we do, by the way. That it's all about our closing our eyes and leaping into this mythology we call Christianity. He says, you're not making it sound good. You're offering the goods. You're, you're investigating this in the same way that I investigate issues in medicine. That in the past I've, in, I've investigated in terms of history and, and law and those kinds of things. You're doing a... You're, you're making this seem that we can actually know it to be true. We can actually know it. And what he meant by know was objectively know it. Know it in time and space, for real. Not just some sort of internal religious knowledge. And that catapults Christianity apart from the rest of the religious pack. We make bold, brash claims and we demonstrate them to be true. God left us a tremendous trail of evidence. Now, uh, Jesus was big on this, by the way. So, so were the Old Testament prophets, and so were the apostles that followed Jesus. I mean, the apostles were, were, were consumed by this idea. I mean, Second uh, uh, Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories. The Greek word there is muthoi, myths, when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The New Testament documents are just rife with this kind of uh, empirical language. We saw it, we touched it, we handled it. No, no, no. We investigated these things. It's true. You know. Or did they get this? I think Jesus set the stage for this. And clearly, the Old Testament prophets were big on this. Think of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I mean, he was big on demonstrating the truth of his teaching, wasn't he? Elijah, you know? You guys worship Baal? I worship um, the God of Israel? Let's, let's have a little contest. So they set up, you know, some some altars, they put slabs of beef or some sort of meat up there, and the prophets of Baal dance around and slice themselves, and at the end of the day, nothing's happening. And so Elijah, just to taunt them, he has people dump huge you know, barrels of water over the sacrifice. <laughs> I, taught, I taught about that in a Sunday school class one time to some young kids, and, and I said, why do, you think, why do you think Elijah was dumping water over the sacrifice? And one kid said, to make gravy. I thought that was so clever. That's a, that was a keeper. But, but down comes the fire and licks up uh, all of the water, the sacrifice, the altar, and you know, all of the Lord's enemies. You know. uh, that was a great demonstration. God actually likes us to know these things are true. Jesus did too. Mark chapter 2 is probably my favorite passage about the, demonst- the Lord's interest in demonstrating the truth of his teaching outside of the resurrection. 
Mark chapter 2. I mean, I'm not even going to turn there. I've got this passage memorized. I could, I, could probably, I could probably give it to you in interpretive dance if I needed to, you know? No, I won't do that. I didn't bring my leotard, you know. Mark chapter 2, great passage. Jesus has become known, it's early in his ministry, he's become known as quite a compelling itinerant preacher. I mean, he's hot stuff. This is a day when there are uh, no Google plexes, no sports stadiums, no video games, you know, uh, not a lot to entertain people. So when an itinerant preacher of the status of Jesus comes to town, it's a big deal, you know. So people hear he's coming and they get probably to Peter's family home early, like in the city of Capernaum, uh, north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has come. This is hot stuff. People get there. They're filling the place. Jesus arrives. I always picture him standing in the middle of the place. Uh, teaching, and the text says that the home was filled to overflowing. You know, literally people standing out in the streets trying to hear what Jesus has to say. Well, the story takes a little twist at this point when uh, we, we, we learn about some great guys in town. I love these guys. There's probably guys like this in this church body right now, I have no doubt about that, who run to get their friend the paralytic. Some local guy who's paralyzed probably, probably since birth. They probably all knew about him. Uh, sitting at the, uh, you know, probably sitting on the ground at the city gate, you know, begging for money because it was a tough thing to be uh, a paralytic or not, not have the use of your legs at that, uh, in that age. So they run and get him. They had a lot of compassion on him. And they, they haul him down to the place where Jesus is. I think they probably did it on the mat. And uh, uh, they, somehow they get the guy up on the roof. Now, I'm not clear on this. <laughs> you know, did they have a couple of guys up catching and a couple of guys down throwing? Or did they use ropes? I don't know what they did. Uh, Mel Gibson will certainly make the movie and we'll, we'll get a picture on this. But somehow they get the guy up on the roof and Jesus is teaching inside and these guys decide to dig through the roof in order to have access to Jesus. So Jesus is teaching, probably a wonderful message on the kingdom of God and dust starts to fall. And then a leaf. You know. And then a beam of light breaks through, you know. It's kind of a dark room, you know. And, and, of course, the beam of light is catching all the dust in the air, and it's looking really ethereal. And the guys who got there earlier are going, ooh, it's getting good now. Jesus is getting a little distracted, especially as the hole grows bigger and more dust and dirt and leaves are falling in on people, you know. This is, I mean, this is a great scene. I would, I'd have paid admission for this. The hole gets a little bigger, and you can imagine a head suddenly popping through, looking around, popping back up gets a little bit bigger and then it really gets crazy because they start to lower this guy on some mat probably held with ropes, you know. And down he comes. And I always picture him kind of landing probably in the middle of the room where Jesus is standing. And so there's the guy laying on the floor, just lowered through the roof in this dramatic scene. Everybody's hushed, waiting to hear what Jesus had to say. And he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's probably their reaction too, you know. Like, good for, good for him. That's neat, you know. Wonder if Jesus will make us lunch, you know. That's great. Why weren't they very excited? Why weren't they Hallelujah? You know, Jesus has forgiven this man's sins. This is great news, you know. Well, I can imagine. I can imagine one reason that they didn't do that is because, you know, if, if sins are actually being forgiven, 
that's an invisible spiritual act, isn't it? It's, it's taking place in the spiritual realm. You can't, you don't have like physical indicators that that's taking place. Right? Son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. What else is going on? You know. So after all this drama, your sins are forgiven. Oh, that was kind of a letdown. I mean, think about this. Uh, what if, uh, what if uh, I, I burst into the room through this side door, right, right here, and I'm wearing long white. I got the whole religious thing going. I got long white robes going, a beard, a staff, and sandals. You know, I have, I have a big hat. You know. I look like Gandalf the White, you know? And maybe even I have disciples following me or something. And I come up to the podium and I say, Behold! Or maybe I say, Lo! Maybe I really hit it out of the park and say, Lo and behold, you know? And I stand up in all my religious drama, my religious finery, and I say to you, My children, your sins, You're thinking the same thing. Yeah, hey, that's neat. Good for us. You see, and this, this is something very important about the nature of Christianity and the character of Jesus and, and his, his plan for displaying the gospel. Jesus did not want to leave it there. He knew what the people were thinking. In fact, there were a couple of Jews in the back of the room going, hey, wait a minute. He can't forgive sins. You know, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew that, but that's, a, that's another part of the story. But Jesus said, Wait a minute. He knew, he knew what the problem was. These people needed a good dose of demonstration. He said, he said this. So that you will, and here comes the operative word, so that you will know. So that you will know. So that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise and walk. The man gets up. He picks up his mat. And you can imagine a path clearing to the door as the guy wanders out to the door. And the text says, he uses the strongest Greek word possible, they were astonished. And the guys who got there earlier were like, yeah, you know, can't wait to tell everybody about this. This was big stuff. But Jesus did not want them to wallow around in some sort of religious unknowing. He wanted them to know. And that's why when Jesus was asked for a sign, give us a sign, you know? He says, I'm not going to give a wicked and adulterous generation a sign except for one, right? The sign of Jonah. And we know what he meant. The sign of the resurrection. He was going to come back from the grave just as Jonah came out of the uh, mouth of the big fish. On another occasion in John, show us a sign. Uh, Tear down this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And he was speaking of the temple of his body. He wanted us to know. And that sets Christianity apart from all of the great religious traditions. We've got the goods on this. I I really do wish I had an hour and a half right now to give you an extraordinary lecture on the evidence for the resurrection because it is utterly compelling. We've got the goods on this. Our Heavenly Father, our great King, what a joy it is to serve a God who cares so much not to leave us stranded in our day and age. You left a tremendous trail of evidence leading back through history to these great and glorious events. We can know these things to be true. We can know them. Lord, this is something very important to keep in mind. Give us your spirit. Give us encouragement Pave a way for us to be great proclaimers of the gospel. 
in your day. Lord, this might be the last time. This might be the last generation we need to get the word out. Lord, help us not to neglect these great, uh, great truths and the great evidence you've left in our hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Let's uh, give a thanks to Dr. Craig Hazel. Thank you so much for coming and, and speaking in the seminar and also just uh, the sermon this morning. It was great. I hope we can have you back again. Uh, just a reminder that uh, Dr. Hazen does have some books and materials. If you the, head out and see the, the information booth, there's some stuff there. And, and he'll be 